We never heard from him again. No letter, no call, no contact. That's very possible. That played a leading role in what happened. Oh, here we go. Two, seven, five, one. Five, 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 six, five, seven. This is it. I think it's an incredible story. I guess I kept wondering why everybody didn't address the elephant in the room. I'm Brian Dolan, and this is The Grandfather Effect. Hey there, it's Brian. I want to hit pause on this episode to ask you for two quick favors. First, don't forget to subscribe to and follow this podcast so you never miss an episode. And second, would you consider sharing the grandfather effect with a few of your friends? You know, word of mouth marketing is the best thing out there. And if you like what you hear, we'd be so grateful for you to help us spread the word about the grandfather effect. Tell your friends to find out more information at moodyradio.org slash grandfather. Again, moodyradio.org slash grandfather. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. Let's just launch into this with having you help Layman Brian here understand what medically is Alzheimer's. Well, Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia, and sometimes we conflate the terms, but dementia is our term for cognitive impairment that impairs one's ability to function daily, and Alzheimer's disease is the primary cause or, or the leading cause, and what actually happens is there are something called neurofibrillary tangles that occur in the brain for reasons we don't fully understand, but essentially these non-functioning deposits start to take over brain cells. And so the functional part of the brain starts to diminish and that causes an overall decline in the brain's functioning. Uh, in terms of how that looks practically, it, it starts with memory and, and cognitive processing and so that's usually the first thing we think about is people who are becoming more forgetful and having more difficulty with daily tasks like driving and cooking and other important things. But then it also starts to impact other functions, even the ability to walk and eat and use the bathroom and those important daily activities. Does it affect personality in any way or is it primarily associated with memories and body functions? The trend that I tend to see is one of two things. One can have more of a, a aggressive acting out, or one can sometimes just become very much more reserved. And when you think about what's happening, one of the tragedies is you know something's wrong, especially in the early stages, but you can't put a finger on it. Others around you may be able to see, but because of the nature of the disease, you can't process your own illness. And so it's very frustrating. Maybe somebody who was very highly functional now is being told, you know, you can't drive, we can't leave you alone by yourself. You, you maybe can't understand why that is. And so uh, one reaction is often to kind of act out and maybe be belligerent. Another reaction is just to kind of withdraw from the world. And those are two of the common things that I see. Is there any sort of awareness by the individual with Alzheimer's that their memory is fading? Or are they not that self-aware as it goes? By definition, they become less and less self-aware. And so maybe in the beginning, you notice that something's wrong and you may even be able to do some things to compensate. 
And I sometimes have patients who come in and the family member saying, you know, we think something's wrong, but we're not totally sure because this person has been very good at compensating, you know, doing uh, adaptive behaviors like writing things down, leaving notes for themselves, etc. But then when we do an actual mental status exam, we sometimes refer to it as the mini mental status exam. It's like a 30 point question we will ask in the clinic. A normal result may be 27, 28, and they score at an 18, and the person can't believe this person has no idea what day of the week it is or uh, uh, what what season it is outside. They're they're very disoriented, and yet they're still able to, you know, function at some level. But yes, as the disease progresses, one really becomes less and less aware of oneself. Social interactions can still take place, but it becomes much more of a minute to minute and moment to moment type of existence because you're not retaining what's happening even a few minutes before the short-term memory is really affected and when you think about how we function day-to-day life you know the, the thing we're doing right now is often based on what happened just a few minutes ago and if you can't even remember what happened a few minutes ago it, it's very frustrating and it, it really becomes a more reactionary type of existence. So you're saying it primarily impacts one's short-term memory? That is true. So the long-term memory tends to be preserved longer. <laughs> I see patients who can you know, sing along every verse of their favorite hymn, but they can't tell you what they had for breakfast. So there is a, uh, a damage to what's known as executive functioning. So the brain's ability to process new information, take that in, and then make a plan of action. And uh, that is one of the things that is harmed first. And so, yes, it's very difficult to take in any new information and retain it. Is there a way to know a typical progression of the disease in terms of years someone would be able to live with this disorder? There really is no typical progression per se, but the average lifespan for Alzheimer's dementia, once diagnosis is made, is about seven years. But that can vary widely among patients. We are getting better at picking up the disease earlier. And so the life expectancy is increasing. But I think part of that is related to the fact that we're picking it up earlier. Part of it is also related to some of the treatments that are available. There are some medications that can help somebody prolong some of their cognitive functioning once it is diagnosed. But there's, I would say, one of my biggest pieces of advice to family members or, or people who themselves might be uh, facing some memory difficulties or noticing that something's wrong is please to go get checked out and talk to the doctor. I think a lot of people are very scared of this disease and they don't want to know that something's going on. But the earlier we know something, the earlier we might be able to intervene. Is there a way some, you, you would, and I know you can't diagnose, trust me, but is it possible the guy could have, because of Alzheimer's, missed two birthdays? I would say that's very possible. Uh, and if he was somebody who was very routine about it before, and now suddenly for no other apparent reason, uh, that's very possible that that, was the, that played a leading role in what happened. And that's the very thing I was talking about earlier, that someone who once was good at a particular activity or a particular routine now suddenly misfiring, so to speak, that is the earliest sign typically of Alzheimer's disease. 
And it's something that, you know, you were used to seeing somebody able to do and now they suddenly can't. And it can be small, subtle things like, yeah, missing a birthday. That, that's actually a very good example. Is it even possible, though, if, if he passed away in 92 of the disease, that that many years earlier, possibly 10 years earlier, you'd see signs of this? Sure. Because as I said, there's a wide variation in terms of the progression. Barring some other event that leads to someone's demise, if, if someone is generally otherwise healthy, they don't have you know, bad heart disease or uh, bad diabetes, etc., people can live longer than 10 years after the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. I'm trying to be overly generous in my possibilities for what took place there. Is it possible he sure. even forgot that my dad sent him a letter? I can't rule it out. Yeah, I can't rule it out. I, I can't rule out the possibility that he couldn't process everything that was being said in the letter. Or one possibility, and I've seen cases like this, sometimes the response to not being able to fully process something is to lash out or to withdraw. Maybe this was just such a difficult thing for him to comprehend that he just didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to act or how to respond. I'll mention one other thing, and often the reaction I can see to this is, is anger at first in the earliest stages. I, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that when your grandfather got that letter from your father, th there may have been a sort of, how dare you tell me that you know, I had forgotten this birthday type of a reaction. And so uh, there may have been a, an angry response. One of the scarier things I determined just recently from my uncle was that he told me a story about my grandfather driving to a place, as you described before, that he'd been at many times and he got lost and he needed help finding his way. And he thinks that may have been in the late 1970s. How long okay. have, have you heard patients able to function in the facade that it's just periods of dementia, like live on their own before people really realize they need help? Oh, sometimes, sometimes years. Yeah, especially, as I said, somebody who's used to living by themselves, they can manage things well, they may have a little blip like that. And at that point, if he had gotten lost, he still had enough wits about him to put some things in place to make sure that never happened again. You know, and so people come up with compensatory mechanisms to survive. And I don't necessarily like to use percentages, but let's say that uh, what we consider normal is 100%. Well, now you're functioning at 85%. You can put things in place to make sure that you don't make a critical mistake. But as that percentage goes further and further down, you lose the ability to make those judgments and compensations. But it's very possible that he had some small changes occurring and there was no way to know about it and he was able to compensate for years. Because that could be a 10 to 15 year span and you're saying that's not out of the realm of possibility for how the disease works. There are cases where we diagnose 20 years before someone's death and he may have been in the category of something we call mild cognitive impairment. So it's not full-blown Alzheimer's disease but there are changes that are not normal and that we would not just attribute to normal aging. Things like just forgetting names and numbers, that's a common thing that people freak out about, but that's normal aging. But mild cognitive impairment can impair things like driving, paying your bills on time, you know, remembering birthdays. So he may have been in that category at that time and, you know, that far back we knew much less than we know now, and there wouldn't have necessarily been a way to uncover it in the early 80s. 
Any final words of wisdom for me on this mystery in terms of your experience? In terms of your particular case, I think it's really a fascinating story and a sad one in that, you know, I'm sorry about the the broken relationship there, but I think it now that we know a lot more about what sounds to me like the beginnings of, of dementia that were happening that probably impacted all of this, it's an opportunity for grace <laughs> to think back on, you know, what happened. In order to sort all this out, I had to shift away from research and meta-analysis. It was time for outside expertise. My dear friend and mentor Nancy Kane is a professor, author, and licensed professional clinical counselor. She graciously agreed to listen to everything you've heard so far and record a pro bono counseling session of sorts. Hey, Nancy, it's Brian. Hi there, Brian. And so, just so you know, I'm recording the whole thing, but we're just hanging out like friends. Okay. <laughs> so, what's your overall reaction? I think a number of things. One, I was, I think it's an incredible story. I, I, I guess I kept wondering why everybody didn't address the elephant in the room, you and, know, of yeah. why, why was there a cutoff and why was there like this obvious, like unknowns. And it seemed like from your uncle to your parents, there's this sense of it being okay to have silence. Explain that more. So I got the impression that your, your dad hadn't been in a whole lot of contact with his brother and that that somehow was okay, as well as on the reverse, your uncle having this resentment towards his brother and you know him saying, oh, well, my bad, but clearly it wasn't bad enough for him to do something about it. Yeah, what what do you um, make of that? Because to me, that's like from a, another universe, and yet the both of them just seem like, whoops, yeah, sorry. But that usually gets set up by the the, the parents, and so I think that um, I wouldn't be surprised if your grandpa, in the the demeanor that people would talk about him, was pretty shut down. So the norm became in the family, well, we just there's just we just don't talk about things that really matter. And so, it, and when, so they, when you've encountered that, is there usually a desire in people to have those conversations or the lack of communication creates even a lack of desire for it? I think it's more of the norm. We're not going to go to anything uncomfortable. Like we want peace above everything else. And so if it means that there might be some harsh words or there might be some hard feelings or we just won't go there. I guess it's difficult to understand in one sense, but then in another, finding out my grandfather didn't ask about us for a decade once. I guess it makes sense, right? Yeah, and also when it comes to um, family systems, there's, um, to oversimplify it, there's two types of family systems. Well, there's three. There's healthy family systems where um, everyone can go to intimacy, that they're vulnerable, that they're engaged in relationships. And then there's disengage where um, the norm is um, we're not going to get that close and we're not really going to expect much from anybody. Uh, the third one is the enmeshed family system. So everybody's into everybody's face. Like they're like, why didn't you show up for 4th of July? And, and you should have brought the potatoes and you didn't. And so it looks like everybody's into this close relationship, but it's really based on this heavy expectation that everyone should show up and be present. But once everybody gets into the room, there's not a whole lot of intimacy. It's all about expectations. So you would put us in that second category then of 
disengaged. So everybody, so in a disengaged family, everybody's very appropriate. There's no conflict, uh, pleasantries, but there isn't a whole lot of emotional engagement. So to your point, you hadn't seen your cousins in years, but nobody talks about that because that's the norm is, well, we're just, we're not going to ever say anything that's uncomfortable or may cause hard feelings or address hard feelings because that's just the taboo. How and does that happen? The family system. Well, it gets, it gets set up with people not wanting to go to vulnerability. It's just too risky and it's too uncomfortable. And it means that some things are going to have to come out of the, um, the skeletons will have to be addressed in the closets that it's just better to leave them alone. Yeah. And you know, what I find out too, is that my brother and I have other family that we've been very close to from my mom's side and my cousins have other family on their mom's side. They're very close to, but we all just see this mystery of each other. And it all stems from, I think our dad's silence from unspoken hurt. But then ultimately, can you point the finger at my grandfather for that? It probably is a generational thing. My hunch is, is that, you know, if, if you were able to unpack it, it would be his father had a certain demeanor, his father, you know, that there would be this demeanor that was passed on through the generations. So can you psychoanalyze I, my grandpa yet or not? Well, I think that he, he was uh, probably emotionally shut down. You know, apart from the Alzheimer's, he, the way that they were describing him very detailed and organized and Whereas his, was it his brother was more flamboyant and yes. out there, is that accurate? Yes. So it's not uncommon family systems for people to play a certain role. So it sounds like he picked up on the role of being the responsible, detailed, organized, but in all that, not having a whole lot of affect. Man. And so then, then communicating that to the rest of the family of, like, how do you get close to someone who doesn't have a whole lot of emotional uh, wherewithal? You can't. It's like, it's like bonding with a computer. <laughs> <laughs> so how does one co- become that way? I mean, I, it doesn't sound like you're saying that my grandfather likely was intentional and malicious about it. It just was a consequence of what, his upbringing or just his personality type? It was probably related to his, his attachment or lack of attachment to his mother. Because we learn our emotional well-being and our uh, sense of vibrancy emotionally from our, um, that first bonding with our parents, with our, specifically our mother. But if there is some kind of breakdown in that attachment, then the child, gets, the child will go to a shutdown place. It's called avoidant attachment, which is I, shouldn't, I don't have any needs and I shouldn't have any needs, nor should I expect anything from anybody else either emotionally. So they, they live into the world with this, again, pleasant, but not a whole lot of vibrancy. The world's more black and white or shades of gray and not colors of the rainbow. I, see, I have a hard time even processing that reality because it's so antithetical to how I operate. So do you encounter right. many people in your practice like that? Yeah, it's not uncommon. And I think that generally people like that marry people that are pretty emotionally vibrant to compensate. So then you aren't even entirely surprised by that recording I found of my grandmother in the early 70s when she's just all mushy-gushy affectionate. That doesn't surprise you based on your experience with people like my grandfather. Right. But when I heard that, I thought, of course, she's, she's playing the emotional role for both of them. He's shut down and she's 
check in and I'm sure out of good intention, covering the emotional wherewithal for both of them in terms of that affect. So then would you expect when she dies prematurely to have the relationship between father and sons just fall apart? Is that typical? Yep. Yep. It is. Well, it's not typical, but it's not, it's not surprising either because he would have had to make the choice at that point. Can I come up to the plate? Will I engage with my, uh, my children in a way that's helpful for them, meaningful for them as well as for me? My hunch is he made a decision a long time ago that he wasn't going to go there. So how, how intentional can I understand that to be? Or is it that he didn't have the capability to be that person when his wife died? The decisions like that are made a long time before that event happened. So when it happened, it just kind of sealed, uh, it's just sealed it in terms of how he was going to be in his world. So, the, and there's always the choice of the will. Yes, there's temperament. Yes, there's, you know, genetics. But a person always has the capability to choose compassion, to choose love, to choose relationship, and conversely, to choose not relationship, to shut down, to not care. And in the family system that you describe, it would have been okay for him to do that because no one would have said, hey, why are you, you know, why haven't you called? Or because the family system's norms were, you don't go there. And he never just, would communicate like that anyway, I guess. so. Right. So both brothers would have had a sense of the dad of, of probably being pleasant, but just not, not emotionally engaged, not really there for it. And that the mother really, again, filling up the room with her heart and her compassion. So in a lot of ways, he didn't have to do anything. And, you know, I, I try to understand in my own mind how a guy goes, though, for a decade without once asking about his, his grandsons and his son. Like, what, can you even begin to understand what's going on there? Is it he's forgotten? He, because I know Alzheimer's plays some role in this, but there, there's part of me that says Alzheimer's played a strong role in his memory. And yet at the same time, there's no way he can get a pass for never even saying, hey, how are my grandsons? Have you talked to them or... Right, but but the picture, if this is generations, so if this is generations of a particular norm, that if there's anything risky, you just don't go there. So even him asking could have been risky business of getting a response back of like, well, why are you asking? Or, you know, you're asking now? Or him maybe being afraid that he asked and then suddenly this unleashes a whole other conversation that he's not interested in. So it's not that he but wasn't he, thinking about it. Right. I'm sure he was thinking about it just by the very fact that if, if he's a father, like he would have memories, he would have some level of attachment to his sons, but not enough emotional capacity because of his choices to really reach out. So there, I mean, that sounds You're painful like, to me, but I guess I, I know how to communicate emotion. So is that a painful thing for someone like that? No. Because it's it, it, it actually, it's a numbing out. It's, a, it's making a lot of decisions in a particular direction just to numb out, to not feel the feelings anymore. And then put some kind of rationale around it of, well, they're grown adults. Well, <clears throat> life moves on. Well, they don't really care anyways. You know, it doesn't make that much difference. A lot of that kind of thing that eventually you 
wake up and you don't have relationships anymore, except the one that he maintained on some level with his one son. But it almost sounds like his son was really active in pursuing him. Yes, and and they live close together, which is part of it, I think. But yeah, he was active in pursuing him. Mm -hmm. So am I accurate in calling it a a disownment, Nancy, or is this something else? I I think that that would be fair, is a disownment. I think that there's... uh, the other part, too, that I wondered about is, is whether there was something about your dad that triggered something in him that, yeah, Alzheimer's, yeah, dementia, but there was something about their relationship that just wasn't pleasant for him on some level. And again, it's a mystery because the whole family system was you don't talk about anything that's uncomfortable. So you'll never really know. You're always left kind of looking between the lines and trying to develop hypotheses. Yeah, and th- and that's been my journey this whole time. Because if you met my dad, he he's not a trigger kind of guy. Just really affable and, and kind, and he's quiet. But I, I I can't even imagine how he'd be a trigger. But it could be, and that's where triggers. That's the irrationality of triggers. It could be that he reminded him. Maybe your grandfather looked at your dad and thought he reminds me too much of myself, or there's something about him that reminds me of myself that I don't particularly care for. And again, because he's not doing any emotional work, not really looking to resolve it or going to personal reflection to resolve it, to grow, to become a a fuller person. Withdrawal in relationship is just as violent as open hostility. And that's the part that I think that you were feeling, as my sense is, is that you were expressing, like, how could someone do this? It's just as violent as an open assault. Wow. Yeah. No, I, it's one of those things that just eats at you for a long time. It's like, how in the world does this happen? How in the world does a guy over a birthday card just ignore his grandkids? Right. And, and hearing the um, physician talk about Alzheimer's, sure, you can forget with Alzheimer's and that could, it could have been started way back then, but it's also indicative of some larger things that were already in place in his personality that he was just continuing to play out. So if you could supernaturally get, you know, my brother and I in the same room and my uncle and my parents and my grandfather, is it even possible to fix these family dynamics? Oh, sure. But it has to be, there has to be on everybody's part, a willingness to come together and take responsibility. It couldn't be like, we're we're just going to talk about this because what will happen in that kind of family system is that the people will default to the, again, the norms. I'm not going to say the hard things. I, I won't go to uncomfortable places. So in that light, then, no, nothing will happen. But if everyone's willing to to come in a sense of everyone taking personal responsibility for their part in terms of how the relationships have not grown, have not been resolved, it, that, and being willing to, to hear the hard things. Yeah, that, that, that sounds almost like an insurmountable mountain, you know, for a guy that 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 never asked about his son for a decade to suddenly start talking about things that matter, you know? Right. Right. And, and, um, again, those choices, like with your uncle saying, um, yeah, I've, I've had resentment towards your dad. It's like, well, why didn't you press into this when it was really happening? Yeah. Like how much did you really care about your brother to really sit down and say the hard things of, of because I care and I am feeling hurt and I do want a relationship. I want to talk about these things. 
help me understand why you weren't there. Help me understand, can you understand why I would feel hurt? Those are really hard conversations that given how your grandpa modeled, there wasn't any map to be able to walk through that. Okay, yeah, because I, I was wondering if, if it's a reflection of being capable, not willing. No, I think it's always a willing. I think it's always a willing because they're adults. They're, they're always that it's, um, you can, and, but you can make particular choices in a singular direction and end up being incapable. Meaning if someone keeps choosing to be resentful towards someone day after day after day, at one point they'll wake up and they're, they're past the point of any real redemption because they've found, they've become so hardened in their ways. That's not beyond the, the redemption of God, but on the human level, I think that the more we make choices in a particular direction, the more we create a pathway that it'll look like they're incapable, but it's because of those choices that they made. So you've seen people with, with bad modeling from their parents and very little communication with that same family system break through and talk about hard things and heal. Yes, and I think that that's God's invitation to everyone is that, that you look in the scriptures and there's clearly God's redemptive hand in family systems, whether you look at David's or Abraham, and there are choices that people can make in that family system to, be, to redeem what sin has done, damage in the family system. So take a, my husband, for example, he's the third generation adult male. He's the first generation of men that haven't been an alcoholic in four generations. His dad, oldest son, died of alcoholism. His grandfather, alcoholic, died in Skid Row in Chicago. His father, alcoholic, again, all the firstborn sons, alcoholic, but Ray, Ray has uh, really felt, raised in a lot of work with saying, looking at the profile of the alcoholism as well as looking at what God was inviting him to and saying that in my generation. So if you were to give my dad and his brother advice on how to repair their broken relationship, how do they go about doing that? Well, I think they would need to sit down with someone um, like a therapist who can be an objective person, but first they would have to be prepped with self-reflection on, on both of their parts of what did they think about their growing up? What did they think about their dad? What's their experience of their family, their journey growing up? And that personal reflection has to start because I sense there hasn't been a lot of, of, again, that deeper reflection on story and their own journey. And some of this is generational, that in that generation, it's more of like, well, it is what it is. You know, we don't need to really think about it, it just is. Well, no, in order to grow, you're going to have to think about it. Yeah, you know, my, my parents said that regularly in a lot of audio I didn't include. It was the, well, you know, when we were kids, parents didn't hang out with their children. This was what the way it was for everyone in their families. Have you seen that generationally, mm-hmm. or is this unique in maybe my Scandinavian background or something? I've seen it generationally, but I've also seen it more so in the Scandinavian because, again, you've got that heavy cultural norm that says we're always going to be pleasant. So if you have something unpleasant... Mm, it's not acceptable because we're going to be pleasant. But behind that pleasantry is a lot of judgment. Man, <laughs> I, I've always wondered if it's a Scandinavian thing because you're right. The, the, the kind of Minnesota nice 
everything's great, mm-hmm. we all like each other, is clearly a facade because not everyone likes each other and everyone has issues. Right. But I guess even generationally raising kids in the 50s, wasn't there some of, somewhat of a cultural reality like that too outside of Scandinavians? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. But out of that generation was born the whole AA and um, Al-Anon because of people like with race scenario, dying of alcoholism and a movement was like, well, no, we've got to, we've got to address these things. We've got to look at what's fueling this. It's not just, well, oh, so-and-so is, that's just the way he is. No, um, that's not just the way he is. That's the choices he's made, but why did he make those choices? There is something with uh, generation, but I also think then you add to that the Scandinavian culture and the, the lack of value for reflection. And his, his choice was painful. It was just painful. And it set in motion for you a certain perception of your grandpa, a certain perception probably of the family system, that because of that, now you're asking the deeper questions. And looking for redemption. I think we're always looking for redemption. Where is where is God wanting to redeem the family, redeem the family system, and redeem individuals in that? Yeah, and that's been my heart. I think one of the, the threads in you know the tapestry of my of my life has been this intense desire for family reconciliation. I've worked with my wife and some of her family in that. And I want to believe that's biblical because I, I feel like, you know, Christ is of course reconciling us to God. His, is his heart mm-hmm. for reconciliation and family as well? Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, back to Ray's journey. I mean, the work that he did individually affected everybody in the family system for those that were willing to grow. And I, and I don't know, um, we'll see in eternity the impact of the personal work that he did that affected, that we can't see, that affected the entire system. So how does Ray get through that, though? I mean, there's a lot of pain and unanswered questions for him. And, and I, you know, I wanted this to be some sort of easy answer. I laughed thinking, hey, it'd be great if he was just a jerk because then I could, you know, dismiss it and go, well, he was a jerk. But it seems much more complicated than that. And I've walked away maybe with more questions than answers. So what, how do I process through this as a follower of Christ who's looking for, to, to find forgiveness and peace and love? The question still begs, what what will you need to be able to let the pain go and, and to really forgive? But I also think that you're looking into the complexity of the human heart. Sin disintegrates us, and Christ is in the process of integrating us. And so with your grandpa, sin had, a, had its effect on him from, I'm sure, a mother that wasn't maybe that compassionate or caring to who knows what happened to her with her mother to we could take that all the way back. and. That's the impact of sin on people, on family systems, on generations, but also the, um, the complexity of the choice of the will. That God will never override our choices to not love, to not care, to, to um, numb ourselves and turn away from him in our own selfishness and self-centeredness that appears more peaceful, but really it's not, it's not peace. In the long run, it's 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 a lack of peace. It's a lack of life. So your your grandpa, it's a, it is a complex situation. Was he a jerk? No, but then he also chose not to love in a way that was radical and meaningful. Well, that's very significant. 
it's just dressed up in a way that doesn't look so violent. Maybe that's why it hurts someone. I think it does because you're left going, well, he behaved pleasant. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is pleasant isn't love. Pleasant is self-seek, you know, is, as I'm describing it with your grandpa, it's more, um, it's self-soothing. It's, it's safe. It's, it's not really engaging. Love always enters in and looks towards the benefit of the other person. Always looks beyond one's own interest for the interest of other people. So how do I, I feel like I'm closer to forgiveness and peace. And I'm starting to feel mm-hmm. that, like how much my grandfather missed out with not being with my brother and me and my dad and my mom. But how do I come to that heart level of forgiveness? Not just the I forgive you intellectually. I think the more you'll understand the choice, the the impact of a lack of love, he he was the way he was because he wasn't loved well. And then his response to not being loved well and his choice not to engage Christ into that becoming whole. But he, I'm sure he had a level of emotional suffering that was a result of what he didn't get in his own childhood. That's sad. Yeah, that he would have to grow up and be one-dimensional, so to speak. But, again, it doesn't dismiss his choices. But I think that we have to then go to God sees all of that. And so the more I can see that in my own self, the more mercy I can extend somebody else. If I don't see that, that if I feel like I've made all kinds of great choices and I've loved well and I've done, that when someone hurts me, it's much easier than to say, oh, well, that's, that's inexcusable because I, re- I work really hard at love. Well, no, I don't. I, I, <laughs> uh, I've screwed up a lot in my life and not loved well and been self-centered and been selfish and, and seen God continue to extend his love towards me. And so the older I get, the more I see that, the more I see how much I've been forgiven from the more I can extend that to other people. And that's kind of where I've gotten to at this point in that I've come to realize that the life that I'm describing, his relationship with my dad and me, happened at an age decades away right now from where I am. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit overwhelming to think that my grandchildren could make a podcast about me in, <laughs> in 50 years <laughs> that based on even my current behavior and, my, and things I've done already that are wrong, they could make a pretty horrible picture of me too. Right, right. So then how do I exactly. honor him in that type of reflection? Because I don't want the takeaway for anyone that who's listening to this to be, wow, that guy's grandpa was a first-class jerk. Well, I think that, that, I think that there may be room for more digging, you know, of, of getting more information from your uncle and from, from Marshall, but to be able to get like the full, fuller picture of what did he do that was impactful? Marshall seems like he had a, a sense of that, just even that little vignette about buying a used Cadillac every year. What does that tell you about him? And I think you're going to have to get a fuller picture because right now it seems like you have about half of the picture. Yeah, and so I mean, how much more do you need to understand about the family system, family tree that he grew up in, that can inform you about him? That again, you're going to get the the larger picture. I can say I know he served in World War II, not in combat, but he was stationed in England for four years. Uh, and I did discover in the midst of this that okay, so his dad's Oscar. His dad died in 1937, 
in uh, June, I believe, of 37. Well, Oscar's dad died just six months earlier. So Mm. my grandfather lost his grandfather and his dad within six months of each other. And he was in his 20s when he lost them both and had to totally Mm. shift gears Mm -hmm. for his life where uh, his brother, Marshall Sr., was a professional musician in California. They both had to drop everything, go take over the business. And my thinking is that probably was a pretty traumatic experience for him in his 20s. And it's not uncommon for someone to have that level of trauma and then just shut down and say, life is too overwhelming. I'm not, I'm going to shut my heart down. I'm not going to go there anymore. Hmm. I'm just going to do the next thing because I don't know what to do with this amount of pain. Yeah. My, my dad's cousin Marshall indicated that my grandfather changed a lot in 75 when his wife died uh, at age 60. That can really hurt people too, right? I mean, in terms of shutting down emotionally when your wife dies. Right. And my hunch is like I, I was saying earlier, my hunch is she, she completed him. Like everything that he wasn't becoming, she was doing it. You know, she was sharing compassion. She was reaching out to people. She was alive the party in a good way. And so she leaves. Now, it's, again, he's having to face all the things that he didn't become. And again, what's, you know, it would be not uncommon for someone to say, I just can't do this anymore. It wouldn't be a fair counseling session without doing some self-examination. So I asked her to turn her attention to me. From the beginning, I I was asking myself the question, why is Brian so invested in this? What is the payoff for him personally, and what is he looking for? Is he looking for on behalf of his family? And then if, if that's the case, then why? Because no one's asking him to do this. Or is he, are you looking at it for yourself? And then again, why? What is it? What's unresolved in you? Help me understand what that could be. Because I wish I had an answer right away. And maybe it's a reflection of my, many of my family. But I don't know if I can give you a direct answer yet. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that I, think, um, I can't answer that. And I think it's okay that you don't know right now. How do I find God out? give us enough truth. Well, God will give us truth as we're able to handle it. So I think asking those questions, what's driving me on this? Where's the intensity? What's painful? What's my outcome that I'm looking for? What's my investment in that? Being reflective on all those levels will lead you to some understanding of truth. And see, I know there's pain there because I've always had an underlying level of pain that I had two grandfathers and I was rejected by both. One personally, one from a distance. But I'm not mm-hmm. certain what I want to get out of finding out why the one from a distance rejected. I, I guess me is the is one of the, but all of us, but me in particular, I don't know that I have a why, Nancy. I do know there's pain there. I can tell you that. But what did you conclude about the pain? What did you conclude about him, about yourself with the pain? What well, makes me sound needy? I can tell you, tell you that need for acceptance, need for. Um, outward expressions of love, perhaps? Mm, I think it's more than that. I, th- I think you, you have to ask, there's a decision you made about that rejection that you're looking to resolve, that, you, that there's something about that decision that is driving you. I don't think you're getting to the decision. Like, what did you decide about yourself as a little boy? That rejection set something in motion in you. Goodness, isn't this where you give me the answer? <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) I want to have an answer to that question because that's one of those deeper level things that could be blocking intimacy with Christ for me. Intimacy for Christ as well as not perpetuating the the generational pattern. So so what is it? (laughs) Yeah, I can't tell you. I don't know. Well, I don't know either. It feels to me like I set out to find answers about why my grandfather disowned me, and I find myself with more questions, and now, more convictions. My eyes feel opened to the realities of mental illness and generational patterns. In talking to Dr. Fisher about Alzheimer's, my heart's broken by how that could have played a role in my grandfather's life. And in talking with Nancy Kane, I realize that other issues are at play here. Issues that I am the victim of, and the perpetrator of, in a long lineage of familial mess. So what does all this mean about my grandfather, about me? I pray that this conviction can turn into action, this fog into clarity, and this story into something that can be redeemed. Maybe this journey wasn't the spirit pushing me towards clarity, but towards conviction. Maybe the story wasn't about my grandfather at all. Maybe it was about me, about all of us. Listen next week to the final episode of The Grandfather Effect, where we'll end our story where it all began.